You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads lead us to cultural dissonance? Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this latest episode, Alma Katsu returns to Artful Periscope to talk about her latest book is now in tra- out in trade, The Fervor. Been praised very, 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 very highly. New York Times book review said, Alma Katza was known for her riveting supernatural historical horror. And NPR also said and wrote, Alma is the reigning queen of literary historical horror. And Alma Katza, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Larry. It's so good to be here. So let's start with, in a sense, a big question all writers wrestle with, and I think that's part of the art and craft of storytelling. In the essence of what you do is to put someone in harm's way to see how they're going to extricate themselves. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. You have an individual and you have to um, test them to the max, right? There's always, you have to drive them to what we call the point of no return in the book, where they can't turn back. They have to go forward. Um, you know, there's there's a lot to the craft of writing the book, but most of it is, most of all, it's the drama. You have to really be able to come up with some great drama and then tell it well. So as a writer, how do you test yourself to go, quote unquote, to the max? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> when I started this, um, started as a published author, 13 years ago, one of the things I did was develop a workshop and it's on conflict, how to heighten the tension. And the things that I developed for teaching in that class, I still use them to this day. And one of the things I advise writers is if things feel a little tepid in your writing to, in a scene to ask yourself, what's the worst thing that could happen? You know, every scene, the, point of view character, whether it's the main character or whoever, has a goal in that scene. And so when you ask the question, what's the worst thing that could happen? What's the worst thing that could prevent that character right. from reaching their goal? And it really forces you to use your imagination. And I always write that scene. Now, I may never use it, but it usually opens up my view into the story. And sometimes I have used it. It's taken a book in new directions. So for this particular book, which is a lot different than what we talked about in terms of Red Widow and Red London. How many different levels are you operating on when you write this book? Because I think there's something that I put down in my notes, and maybe we'll get to it a little bit later. I call this book as about then and now. There's so many examples about in the book, then and now, that makes me pause and think that you are really talking about a lot of different things on many different levels. Yes. And I don't know if that's a blessing or a curse. (laughs) Some readers love that. They love the complexity of the stories. Um, I think maybe some readers find it a little frustrating because they usually have multiple narrators. And while they're always set in the past, I think what you're referring to is they sort of 
hearken back to things that we may be experiencing in the present. And where that came from was after I wrote the first historical horror novel, Hunger, I, of course, got a lot of questions. Why should we care about what happened to the Donner Party now? You know, it's been, I can't remember, it's like 170 years. Why, why now? Why would you write about it now? And it really forced me to look at what made the story of the Donner Party relevant today. And I try to carry that lesson with me through all the historical novels that I write, that there's got to be a reason why this story still resonates, will still resonate with people today. And the World War II and the Japanese internment, of course, is almost a no-brainer. <laughs> you know, it so mirrors a lot of what we've been going through in this country in the last few years. It was an anthology series on BBC, and I think AMC called it Terra. And the mm -hmm. second season addresses a lot of what you discuss in the book. And I love that series. And the book also kind of fleshes out a lot of things that I watch in a TV series. And one of the things that fascinates me in the big picture, Alma, is how do demons, spirits, gods reflect the belief systems of various cultures? Well, you know, it's really interesting. I didn't think about this too much until, you know, I'll when you finish writing a book and then you have to go and do the promotion is when you probably really think the most and analyze your own work the most. And it, it made me think of, of my childhood. My mother's Japanese. My mother was Japanese. I, I should say she passed away a little while ago. And, um, you know, it, for me growing up in a household that was Japanese, but also Roman Catholic right. and predominantly Roman Catholic, um, you know, you're you are raised with these paradoxes and these conflicting ideas, you know, like reincarnation. Well, Catholics don't believe in reincarnation. And, you know, it wasn't until I was thinking about this book, I realized how different my mother viewed spiritualism, but also, you know, folklore and ghost stories and all that kind of stuff. Roman Catholicism, of course, is is very mystical and, you know, you know, almost gothic right, in a lot of right. its attitudes. And, um, you know, one of the big things that came to me was, you know, growing up, again, I grew up in a super spooky town in New England, very Victorian. We lived in a Victorian house that actually had, had been a manse, had been the, the residence of a minister. And, you know, all of those things, whether it's ghosts or, you know, spirits and it, it's scary, right? Like you're, it, it creates this fear um, reaction in you. But in the Japanese, it's different. They're not really afraid of it. it. They accept it as part of life because it's so vast and so integrated into their everyday life. I mean, and that difference really struck me. Are you a parent yourself? Do you have children? No. Well, I'll tell you where I'm going. I didn't mean to pry. But no, no, there is a, then this, this heightens my appreciation of you, and I don't want to give anything away, but there's one scene in this book with a reunion of a parent and a child. And it is so beautifully rendered and so emotional because, you know, there's something called foreboding and writing, understand that. So we, we kind of think maybe something's going to happen. We don't know, and that's the beauty of the book. But that scene which I'm referencing, you can go as far as you can with it, but it's so beautifully done. Oh, well, thank you so much. I mean, I, I would say that um, portraying, you know, poignancy or, or actually sadness is probably the, 
the one kind of writing I do really well. I kind of joke. I, I mean, I'm, I don't really think of myself as a horror writer very much. You know, I try to, um, and, but now I've been sort of embraced by the horror community. So I do put more of what people might think of as sort of traditional horror elements in my stories. Right. But I grew up in the era, you know, where writers really try to pull those heartstrings. And, um, and, and that's sort of my natural, you know, if, if I can sniff out a tragedy in a story or a subplot, you know, I'm going to go for it. The book jumps back and forth between 1927, which I love, and I'll tell you why very soon, okay. and 1944. Because we were recording this episode right now in the back end of September. And in the back end of September, in the history of the New York Yankees, Babe Ruth hit his 60th home run. I'm a huge baseball fan. And I'm reading this and I'm saying, how can I weave this into the conversation? <laughs> because the books kind of start on an island – in 1927 with a scientist, his daughter, and his wife. And I think that's the whole wheel of the story. Well, it, 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 it is. And um, the reason that that thread is in the book, even though it takes place so many years before World War II, it, it's kind of the crux of why I find writing all these historical horror novels so interesting. There's just so many little facts right. in history. History's made up, right? Millions of little facts, most of which most of us are not aware of. So that's in there just to show just the sort of wonder at the fact that this Japanese scientist, and this is a true story, he was the one who discovered the jet streams. And that was in 1927. He was studying air currents over Japan. And um, we talk about it a bit in the book, but, you know, it wasn't well known because he was Japanese and the scientific community at the time really didn't focus outside of Europe, Europe and the United States. So papers and discoveries that were made by people in other parts of the world tended to sort of fly under the radar, if you'll forgive the pun. And even at World War II, the, the concept of the jet stream was not super well known in the United States. And a lot of people are amazed to learn that, oh, it was this unknown Japanese scientist who, who made the discovery years before. Writers are very good playing with us. They have a sense of humor. And I can mention some writers that I know. And they even told me that we'll play with an audience a little bit. One of the most famous things is something called the MacGuffin. I think in your book, talking about, and you may have it, I don't know, I may have missed that part. But in your book, I have something called the Rosetta Stone. And I think the Rosetta Stone in this book are the journals. Oh, yes. Well, you know, people like uh, to have, like, um, other types of text interjected in books besides just the straight prose, you know, the narration over and over. And that's a little bit of something that I try to do in every book. There are letters, there are telegrams, there are um, flyers. But in this case, I used the journals. And it was a way to look back into the scientist's life right. so we could understand the relevance of what he did to his daughter, who's now in America, now in, a, in an internment camp, um, as a way to do that without having to do flashbacks, which I think some readers find sort of distracting. I don't. Now, we just talked about earlier, then and now, which I'm always looking for. And if it's not there, I'll invent it, by the way, just to see the, the guest's reaction to, um, I'm on the wrong track here. They'll bring me back in. Then and now, in this country, 
Tuskegee syphilis experimentation. During World War II with the Nazis, Dr. Mengele, you have a circuit plan going on in terms of experimenting on the Japanese-Americans in the internment camps, and that's a big driver of the story. It is, it is in the story. And I have to say, you know, I was kind of hesitant to go there uh, because I'm an ex-federal employee. I had an entire career with the federal government, and I know that, you know, most federal employees have incredible integrity and you know, would not participate in something like that. I guess the other thing I should mention too is one of the things I did when I was in, in intelligence had to do with genocides and mass atrocities. So I have training in the law of war and all that sort of stuff. Right, and right. I know what our obligations are if you work for the government and you encounter, let's say you encounter this kind of program, right? And and so I thought it was a disservice to the fine people who are federal employees or have been to raise that. And then January 6th happened and we, you know, we got the cover pulled back a little bit on the extent to which uh, people who were, you know, former military, current military, police, you know, law enforcement were doing something that I'm sorry, I know they know they should not have been participating in, right? Um, and so I didn't feel so bad. I, I did feel like you could make a case for these these threads of evil still exist in this day, and it is possible to find it even within the U.S. military. Now, I think the last time you were here, there was a lot of discussion about the spy balloons coming from China over to this country. The balloon or balloons are, in a sense, the character in this story, and I think about biological warfare. And then we go back to 1927, and the research on this island. So I don't want to have spoiler alerts, but take it from there, why these balloons are so intrinsic in terms of understanding what's about to happen to a lot of people, especially in the internment camps. So um, I, uh, I'm surprised now when I was touring for the book and talking to readers, how few Americans had ever heard of these fire balloons. But when I was a kid, I did learn about it, and I think more people probably knew about it. But during World War II, the Japanese did send over these giant balloons with uh, incendiary devices that were hanging underneath them, sent over thousands of them uh, in the hopes of spreading fear and terror in the United States. By the time they worked out the program, it was the end of the war. And, you know, sending over these balloons was sort of a futile poetic gesture, I guess. They had no illusions that it was going to change the course of the war. Of the, I think it was about 2,000 balloons that were sent over, there were 285 um, actual incidents, right, where they found parts of a balloon or balloon touched down on power lines. There were um, very few actual, like, fires that were started. As you can imagine how fragile it is to try to send a giant balloon made out of rice paper across the Pacific Ocean with this very fragile incendiary device and really kind of primitive below. The fact that any of them made it over to the United States and actually set something on fire is almost a miracle. The book opens with a very pivotal scene, which is which actually happened in U.S. history, and it's the only 
recorded deaths of Americans on American soil during World War II. And that's when one of these fire balloons exploded on Gerhard Mountain in Oregon, killing five school children and uh, the wife of a minister. And that's all in the opening of the book. So to me, those fire balloons are so vivid. And it was kind of interesting, like I said, since so few people know about it in this day and age, that when the Chinese spy balloons, you know, made the news, it just goes to show, you know, things are never quite over when you think they're over. You never know when they're going to pop back into our lives. So let's reset. I'm Larry Davidson, for better or worse. This is the podcast Artful Periscope, and my guest is the author of The Fervor, Alma Katsu. So you mentioned... um, one setting. Are the settings locations also characters in the book? We talked about the island, that little small island over in, in Japan. You also take us back to 1940 in Seattle, but it's almost like you're taking us on a journey going from one location to another location to another location. I'll tell you why I really love this thing. When I graduated high school, I had what little money I had at the bank. I bought a bus ticket. I rode the bus from New York City to L.A. And what an adventure because I stayed on the bus the whole time, but people got on and off. And stories that you could hear and told and meeting different people in different parts of the country, I've never forgotten that. I'm not talented enough to be a writer, but there were a lot of stories there. And your story unfolds going from one location to another location, back and forth and back and forth. And that's how we meet these characters and what drives them. Oh, well, thank you. Well, first of all, I have to say, that sounds like an amazing trip. And kudos to you for having the foresight as a young man to send yourself out on a trip like that. That could almost be the theme of an anthology, you know, get a bunch of writers to pick up stories as the bus goes across the country. Um, I really enjoyed writing, another reason why I really enjoyed writing this book was, as you said, because the all the settings were almost like characters. It's really sort of an exploration of the American, you know, upper Midwest right. out to the coast. It looks at uh, trying to really give a snapshot of what the communities were like in that time, particularly the Japanese communities in the Pacific Northwest. And, um, you know, um, I think I might have mentioned it. My husband's family were all interned. They were at Topaz. And, um, you know, so for decades, you know, we've heard these stories from family members. We were very interested in it. So we watched a lot of documentaries, read a lot of books and that sort of thing. So I feel very confident that the communities that I write about, um, you know, the Japanese community in um, the Seattle area and how they interacted and were integrated or not integrated with the white community, that all that is very authentic. And also what takes place in the camps is very authentic. And, and then for me, being an East Coast girl, and I haven't had the opportunity to travel through Wyoming and Nebraska and all those areas. So I did a lot of research and I really just tried to immerse myself in what it must be like to be living in that amazing part of the country during that time. So yeah, I hope uh, readers really enjoy the little travel log there too. So in a sense, as being a Japanese American, we're going through a period right now where in terms of being woke, I look at Florida, I look at American history, Project 1690, taken out of books, taken out of libraries. Are you worried about what you know a lot about? This is a novel, so people take as a novel, 
the history of your family, your family's tree are going to be removed from the history books. Very concerned. And I think, you know, a lot of minorities in this country are. But then I also have the rage <laughs> of being a former intelligence officer. You know, I gave at this point, over half my life to, to protecting what I see as what I believe to be American values. And one of them is, you know, that America is the place where you go to find opportunity and freedom that we welcome immigrants. And to think that some people are so bound on turning back that clock, to me, that seems anti-American. That is exactly what this country, what people in this country have fought against, you know, for decades. So yes, very afraid. And the thing about the Japanese internment is the folks who are in the camp are aging out. You know, a right, lot of them right. have passed away and the ones that are left are, are pretty elderly. And if we don't capture these stories now, we're going to lose them. So it's really important that these types of books be allowed to be written. That's a really good segue. And I'll tell you why. In my mind, there are three kinds of memories. There's short-term memory, there's long-term memory, and what I call institutional memory passed mm. from in the family truth from grandparents to parents to children, their children down the line. Of those three, which is your biggest strength, which is the most important? Wow, that's great. I mean, I would probably say, especially for a story like this, it's institutional memory. And the other thing is, and I'm, you're probably aware of this, because it wasn't just with the folks that were uh, interned in the camps here, but also concentration camp survivors a lot of them don't want to talk about their experiences. They, it seems crazy to us now, but I know from firsthand trying to get my in-laws to talk about the things they went through, people are embarrassed about it. They're ashamed. They're ashamed that they were sent to a, a prison, basically, that somehow they didn't, they weren't able to save themselves from it. They're, uh, you know, sad about all the people they left and right. they survived. Right. They have survivor guilt. So, uh, you know, all of the details that make these stories so important are going to be lost if family members don't pull it out of, of um, you know, of their loved ones. The audience can see that. You saw my visual reaction, and I'll tell you why. I interviewed Thomas Blatt, multiple interviews, one of the last living survivors. He's since passed away of Sobibor. And I've interviewed other Holocaust survivors. When I was growing up, when I was maybe six or seven years old, I saw the tattoos on the wrist, mm -hmm. and I was, didn't know. And, I, and they said it was from the camp, and I said, summer camp? No, the camp. And the one thing I learned from doing this over the decades, which is fascinating, because I also think about the great film with Rod Steiger called The Pawnbroker. What I was told was they ne were never comfortable talking about with the family members, but they were more comfortable talking about somebody like me, a stranger. And I thought that was really fascinating because once again, harking back to the family tree and institutional memories, family members really need to know about their background and what we feel in the past really had to wrestle with. Right. I mean, I can understand that. It's hard when you've been through an experience like that. Like I said, I can't speak, of course, for the views of the Holocaust survivors, but this has been documented among the internment camp, um, you know, survivors, that they were very ashamed. I mean, at the, at, at the the after the executive order was issued, Japanese leaders in the communities around the, on the West Coast 
were urging Japanese to obey the executive order, to go peacefully to the camps, not to resist, in order to prove to them what good citizens we were, right? And and most of most of the Japanese did go without protests. There were lawsuits and that sort of thing over right, the years, but right. minimal compared to how many people were sent. 120,000 people sent to the internment camps, of which 70,000 were U.S. citizens. So after, with time though, more and more Japanese got to regret that they didn't stand up for themselves, that they let themselves be sort of pushed into that situation. So I know at least for the Japanese that that sort of being ashamed of of what they didn't do was part of the equation. Even in groups, there are hierarchies. And I'm going to refer back to the German Jews that got out of Germany and came to America and got established. Arno Rothstein was one of those German Jews. And the German Jews looked down on the other Jews that came to America from Eastern Europe. You reference this in a sense because it's a very important aspect of Mieko's daughter, Eiko, because she is what they call, correct me if I'm wrong, Nisi, N-E-I-S-I, because of her father and her mother. Her father is an American, her mother is Japanese, and she had... That's really important what you do as a storyteller. Had this young child, and she is so key to the story, and I'll tell you why. A little child lead us to salvation when you read the book. But she has to wrestle with, she in a sense, even the internment camp with all these other Japanese Americans, she is looked at and her mother is looked at differently. Well, yeah, and a lot of that is that sort of guilty knowledge I have from growing up the daughter of a Japanese woman and, you know, and I'm half white and half Japanese because Japanese, I hope it's changed today, but all that time growing up, it was very obvious that Japanese, you know, were very proud of their ethnicity, right? Japanese are told that you're better than any other race on the face of the earth, you know, and that they try to maintain that purity of the blood by Asians marrying Asians, Japanese marrying Japanese. And it's only until, you know, it was the 60s or so that that the, more Japanese were intermarrying, you know, with other races. And so, you know, I wanted to reflect that in the book because it's honest. The Japanese would look down a little bit on you if you were uh, multicultural, right. you know, if you came from more than one race. And you would be sensitive to that as a child. Now, I grew up in a community that was in New England, we were the only Asian family in town. So I didn't really have to bear that kind of scrutiny from other Japanese, but you certainly felt it from folks that, you know, were 100% Polish or 100% Italian or something. There was just something different about me and my siblings. Um, yeah, I think that pretty much captures it. So there's probably a little bit more of me and my view on things with with Aiko than maybe with some of the other characters. And there's one thing I just need to correct. The term Nisei is not because she's half white. Right. It um, Again, this has to do with purity of the blood in Japan. Nisei means if you went to another country, but you were born in, in uh, Japan, you are first generation. You're still 
you know, considered Japanese. Nisei is uh, second generation. Okay. So I'm a Nisei, for instance, because my mom is Issei, but um, I was born in the United States. And then third generation uh, is, would be like if I had a child, they would be considered uh, uh, sensei. I want to harken back to what's happening in Germany with Kristallnacht. Now, it's not the same in this book, but you have a bunch of people called the Royal, I don't know, the Loyal Sons of Liberty, something like that. Once again, then and now. But these men go into town and do what I call my version of Kristallnacht as they go and attack and firebomb, I believe, a newspaper. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's not not an apples and oranges comparison because Kristallnacht was much, much worse. But the thought behind that is quite the same. Intimidation, bigotry. Yeah, absolutely. And again, as a genocide analyst, um, you know, we we see this playbook, right? Whenever an autocrat's trying to come to power and he's usually supported by a militia of some kind or these citizen groups, they go through certain steps like sending what we call night letters, you know, when they post letters warning people that you better get out of town, your kind's not wanted here, that kind of these threatening letters get nailed to their door at night or put in their mailboxes. And then it starts to escalate to violence. So what I depicted there in the book is very authentic. And that group, that you know, paramilitary group, the Loyal Sons of the Republic, whatever I call them, is actually based on a real group. So that was part probably the most disturbing part of my research, going back and finding out why were Americans holding these, you know, damaging and incorrect views of Japanese. Right. It, it was because there were decades and decades of systemic racism, you know, groups all through California and the West just started out by going after the Chinese and then the Japanese to try to deny them citizenship, to to deny them the opportunity to own property. And, you know, what's at the base of this, basis of it? I know because I've seen it in dozens of other countries around the world and throughout history. It's economic competition, pure and simple. So, you know, people who are afraid of competing with migrants call them vermin, you know, call them less than human, just those same, we see this over and over and over again, whether it's in, you know, the Democratic Republic of Congo or in Eastern Europe during World War II, it was done to the Japanese and the Chinese on on the West Coast in in, um, earlier in America. So when I reached out to a publicist that you put me in touch with for the fervor, she also sent me a copy of The Hunger. So I have downtime I'm going to read that also. But you said this book is slightly departure from The Hunger and The Deep and The Descent and The Reckoning and The Taken, all these other books in that same genre. Why is this book slightly different for you? Well, one lesson I learned from writing these historical horror novels is is that it might be better to stray a little farther away from the actual history. And so The Hunger, for instance, is very, very close to history. Uh, almost all the characters in that story are people who actually existed. I stick really closely to the timeline and also the geography of where the Donner Party went. But 
And while that's fun, I think for readers and an interesting challenge for the writer, it does put you in a little bit of a straitjacket because I'm not trying to just write a fictional version, you know, of, of nonfiction. I'm trying to tell a different story and I'm using you know, this historical thing is an example. By the time I got to The Fervor, which is the third historical horror novel, I am almost completely in the other camp. There's some bits of history that are factual, but most of the characters are made up. I made them up. Um, a lot of the things that happen in there are sort of made up. They have anchors like like the paramilitary group. Um, but I wanted to tell a more fantastical story because honest to God, what we were going through in this country a couple of years ago, and I don't think it's over, is pretty fantastical and I don't mean in a good way. Um, and you kind of have to fight fire with fire. Right, right. I want to switch gears a little bit because the first time you were here is for Red London. So in terms of what you do as a female spy novelist, is that a relatively small club, small sorority in terms of other writers like you that are female? There there aren't that many. There's a few. Karen Cleveland, whom I know, is um, a former CIA analyst, and she's written three books, I think, that are, you know, spy novels but focus on women. Francine Matthews did it a while back. Um, she was one of the first. Um, so I'll say this about it because uh, it's been bothering me a lot lately. It's very hard for women who write in this field, particularly if they write about their major characters are women, to get the same recognition that men get writing in this field. And I do think there are fabulous books being written by women that just can't get... I don't know how to put this any other way, except it's just sort of ingrained into the mindset, I think, of people who enjoy these books. And there's a small group of guys who are sort of gatekeepers to the community. And they like books that are like the old books, right? Right, They like a book that's like Frederick Forsyth or that's like John le Carré. I do too. But if it's, so it means that it should be a male main character and that it's all about the male's perception and the male, and they won't even bother to pick up a book written by a woman. So, you know, it's a real conundrum for women who write in this. You had mentioned that you're going to be having Alana Berry on your show. Right. Uh, I.S. Berry, her book, the, the Peacock and the Sparrow, is very good. Very good. But, you know, she didn't put her name Alana Berry on the cover. I know. She used uh-huh. a gender, gender neutral. And also the book is from a male point of view. And so it's it's gotten great reviews, and it should because it's very well written. But I can also see it as an attempt to sort of square the circle by trying to appeal to the traditional fans, but also the gatekeepers of the industry. So let's take it one step further in this conversation. Will there be a female version of John Le Carrier or Graham Greene? I don't know. I mean, I I thought I could be that person, but it's been very very difficult to convince people to read the the Red Widow and Red London books. The crazy thing is that Hollywood loves them. We have optioned Red London to Lionsgate and Temple Hill. Now that the strike is over, hallelujah, yes. uh, we're hopefully going to get started on the production end of things. I had a story that came out recently on Amazon Original Stories called Black Vault, yes. which is um, 
it's it's about a, a man who worked at CIA. He's about to retire, and he's asked to sit on this task force looking at the unidentified aerial phenomena that became so kind of notorious after the 60 Minutes piece, uh, talking to the Navy pilots about what they've seen and what can't be explained. And he gets very mad because he thinks someone's out to get him because 15 years earlier, he had reported an incident, uh, an encounter with UFO, and it ruined his career and it ruined his life. His wife left him and he's just been bitter and miserable ever since. But the story and his ability to be on this task force to look into it gives him the chance to reopen that case. And they find out that not only was he not wrong, but there is a incredible cover-up and secret that will have worldwide repercussions. And that story um, really resonated with Hollywood. I spent, right after it came out, I spent weeks, we got multiple bidders uh, and we're in the final round of bidding for it. So I'm very frustrated that I think I can write stories that include this, you know, some intrigue and national security issues and all that, but still make them great stories. And it is so hard to convince readers to pick them up. Well, we're going to help convince everybody to listen to this podcast. Now, while you're still here, I want to tell you something. I want my audience to hear this. You really get what this is all about. This is a relationship between you, your publicist, the release of the book, the interviews that you do, for radio, television, for podcasts, personal appearances. And what I want to say is, if people listening to this podcast, for better or worse, are not thrilled with me, find out where else Alma is. Because I really believe that you may, I may have missed something, or maybe my style is not the listener's style. But I really want people to go and find you, no matter where you are. Because I listen to a lot of podcasts. I just listened to this Leslie Jones of Saturday Night Live just released a book. She was on two different podcasts. She was so different in each one that I really appreciated that. And it says to me, go out, do your homework, and find out wherever the author is speaking because you're going to get a lot, not just from one, but from many. So, Alma, I know how good you are in promoting every appearance that you do. You did it with me the first time. You didn't have to. And because of that, I'm greatly appreciative of what you do. Well, Larry, I love speaking with you. And, and it, you know, you're, first of all, thank you very much for the kind words, right? But you are so much fun to do an interview with because you really think about storytelling and how to make it relatable to people who love to hear stories so that they can kind of understand you know, what goes in, what's the magic behind how you make a story? How does the author get from what's in their head to be able to tell a story that's going to hopefully transport somebody else in their life? So thank you very much for the opportunity. My guest has been Alma Katsu. The book is called The Fervor, Good Look with Black Vault. I know there's been a lot of conversation about that. The only lesson that I know is when you turn your book over to Hollywood, you're letting a child go unless you're the screenwriter yourself. So good luck with all the endeavors because I know it's really hard to let go because they may change an awful lot, but at least your name is out there and you'll be compensated properly. So God bless you for everything that's coming down the road. Alma, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast off the Periscope. When we come back, 
We'll talk about storytelling in a different venue, the world of professional wrestling. I'm really going to surprise you with my thoughts and observations. Be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. Hi, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Larry Davidson. Once again, thank you so much for Alma Katsu, who's a quintessential storyteller. I want to talk about storytelling. In terms of professional wrestling, when I was very young, I used to go down to my basement, turn the lights off, and watch something called Bedlam from Boston. And the, re- the wrestlers then were Haystacks, Calhoun, and Happy Humphrey, and Killer Kowalski, and Bruno Sammartino, the Clawhold, Gorgeous George, and everything else. I was young, and that's what I used to like, watch television, and I used to watch professional, quote-unquote, wrestling. I moved away from that for many, many years many years till recently. I've been following some television programs that are just, in terms of storytelling and storylines, by the way, they get it. It's not about what necessarily happens in the ring. It's everything that sets up the competition, if you consider this competition. It's an exhibition. It's, it's entertainment. But there are a couple of TV programs that really are terrific. One is GLOW. The other one is heels. Now, do you know in terms of storytelling, in terms of novelists and television and radio and movies, there are heroes and villains. In wrestling, it's heels and baby faces. The heels are the bad guys and the baby faces are the good guys. I just finished, I binged it actually, a Netflix series called Wrestlers that takes a place in, in with a group called Ohio Valley Wrestling Organization. And it's the storylines. It, you learn how everybody's personal history is woven into what they do in the ring. They literally have a mother and a daughter wrestling each other in the ring. And the whole series takes you from the beginning to the end when they have this huge last event. And it is amazing, amazing storytelling. Heels and baby faces. Now, I did a while back interview... He wrestled as mankind, Mick Foley. He wrote a book, and it's a pretty graphic novel, by the way. So we did a radio interview, we did a TV interview, and he came to a library that I was doing some programs for, and we did an interview for the public. And the one thing that irked him was, when I raised this, were you ever involved with steroids? Now, have you ever watched, he's from Long Island, by the way, Ward Melville, Ward Melville. His father was athletic director, and he was a very good athlete in high school. Have you ever seen what Mick Foley looks like? He's not overblown. But he looked at me, and he gave me a look and saying, 
I'm not going there. But I like going to what I call gifted, quintessential storytelling. And these wrestling events, more so in the little wrestling venues, are trying to make it in the WWE. They, they exist in small towns in Georgia and Florida, throughout the country. And the beauty of this is, especially in this Netflix series, Wrestlers, that people every week look forward to coming to a competition. And the setting Wrestlers is set in Harlan County, Kentucky, which also is the setting for Justified, which is gifted, gifted storytelling based on Elmer Leonard's books. And this is considered one of the poorest counties in America. But they come to the event and they scream and they cheer and they yell and they look forward to it every single week. So in a sense, I don't know what brings you together as a community because most of us are now separated. We live in our own private bubble and that's disturbing in a sense too. But anything that brings people together I'm all for. Also, I just kind of want to mention that I did my research. I I wanted to look back in terms of older TV programs and movies about the old days when I was a kid sitting in my basement in Seaford watching Bedlam from Boston, which is a great title. And there's a great documentary that takes was shown in 1961, I believe it was a French documentary taking place in Montreal. And it's and it, what it addresses is the wrestling arena is sort of a modern-day shrine. That's beautiful. The wrestling arena is sort of a modern-day shrine, which goes back to the, the, the series, Netflix series, when people come together. I don't want to say it's a shrine, but they're praying for something. Even they love seeing the fake blood, and boy, the fake blood flows. But every once in a while, there's also real blood flowing. There's also, there was a wonderful film that I saw a few years ago, and it, it's actually a tragedy that uh, transpired there is a gentleman, this member of the DuPont family, John DuPont, and he in Delaware, and he was very, very wealthy, but he was very eccentric. But he loved amateur wrestling, which is as pure as it can be. I was a big fan of high school wrestling and collegiate wrestling and wrestling on the Olympic levels because I think he's not going to make a lot of money. A lot of these wrestlers are now going over into martial arts and things like that or professional wrestling. But the purest form for me, and also in sense gymnastics, well, in gymnastics, you can't make some money with endorsements. So he had this wrestling camp on his home, this wonderful home in Delaware. And he brought into a whole group of professional uh, amateur wrestlers to train for the Olympics. And what happened was he was... And the, and the movie is called Foxcatcher. One of the wrestlers was Mark Schultz. His brother was also there. Mark Schultz was, I believe, an Olympic champion in freestyle. There are two kinds of wrestling in, on the Olympic level. 
and the world competition level. It's Greco-Roman, which goes back to original Greco-Roman. Everything has to be above the waist. You can't go to the legs. And then there's freestyle. Freestyle wrestling on the collegiate level is different than freestyle wrestling on the Olympic and international level. So Mark Schultz is there. He's training. And Steve Carell played the character. But Steve Carell is a really, really good actor. But the character in real life and the character in the movie is just trouble very troubled and what happens at the end he's paranoid and everything else that I can think of or I can't think of the proper psychological terms and categories he kills Mark Schultz he shoots him and this is what happened so even though he had the best of intentions he thought he was controlled everything he thought he was the the coach of these of all these wrestlers who like to get out there and when they're training and running on the mat with them he used to go to the events but he thought in his own mind he was adult that i am more than anything else and something snapped and when he snapped he killed mark schultz but if you get a chance you can find it somewhere i think it's worth watching because we talk about storytelling and storylines. This was a story that had a very traumatic ending. Once again, I want to thank Amaketsu, who understands heroes and villains, heels and baby faces, for our latest book called The Fervor. I'm Larry Davidson. Till next time. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro. Sound editors and engineer Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all.